talk about women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. We are your hosts. I'm Lauren. I'm Alicia. How are you today, Alicia? Oh, I just thought I'd sure. ask. I have a really sore neck. Which sucks. It does suck. That's if anyone good. out there in podcast listening land is a masseuse, mm, please jump then to the internet and tell Alicia <laughs> what she can do slash arrive at her say, house. Yeah, jump on the internet and give me a massage, yeah. but I don't know how that would work via well, the internet. But anyway. We could hook something up. It could be done. Could so be that's done. how I am today. How about you? I'm a little bit sick. Oh, fuck. We suck. So my voice might get a bit wobbly. <laughs> might get a bit funny, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Oh, it's hard times. Best. It's hard times in Deviant Women land at the it moment. Is. But that's all right because we're going to work through it. We'll push through. Because we're up to episode, episode 15. 15. Good job, us. I know. So exciting. And thanks everyone for sticking with us for this long. Well, that's why we're still going because people are actually listening. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> we probably would have quit by now. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, who would we have been talking to otherwise? Just ourselves. ourselves? But that's not unusual. Yeah, but we wouldn't need to record it anymore. No, that's true. We, we could just, just do talk. it. Yeah. So also, I just want to say thank you to those people who have uh, joined up on Patreon this month because you guys are fucking awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's another reason why we haven't quit. Yeah. So if you want to keep doing that, it would be terrific. And if you want to, like, tweet us pictures of you in your T-shirts, that would yeah. be rad. Yeah, so a few people have got we their t We have actually already had now. one T-shirt tweet. That yeah. was great to see. Yeah, send us pictures of you wearing your Deviant Women T-shirt. Yeah. Should we? Do we? I mean, we're going to do this at the end, but speaking of wearing your Deviant Women T-shirt. We should just do it Should now. we just do the announcement now? Yeah. So we always seem to have an announcement. <laughs> because this time, it's fun. Yeah, well... We don't have much else going on. <laughs> so this time around, we have an announcement of the store that we promised you. The store. It's finally here. We kept on promising this shop. It's finally happening. <laughs> We're on Etsy. We are. So <laughs> that was the launch of the shop song. Boom. Officially Done. launched. And Consider that ribbon cut. We've cut the ribbon. It's we've happened. Cut the ribbon. Stop. Every, stop it, Lauren. <laughs> Just stop. Okay? Mm. Right. So the ribbon's cut. The ribbon's cut. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Don't make me be mean to you. <laughs> and so if you go to Etsy, you can just basically search for us there. And yeah. you can buy so our wares. Yeah. So we hope to be shipping those out to you real soon. So please do get on board and also on board at Patreon as well. Yeah. Yay. All right. So let's crack onto it. What are we talking about today? Well, I don't know. You're in charge today. Yeah, yeah, am So you, you tell me what, what we're talking doing? about today. I forgot. Where are we going to be in the world? I haven't really forgotten. That's no. a lie. Such a that lie. would be so underprepared if I'd forgotten. <laughs> Imagine. Imagine that. You just have to make shit up for the next 45 to <laughs> minutes to an hour. I'm not making it up. No, we're going to the Edo period in Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. When exactly was <clears throat> the Edo period in well, Japan? 
That's a good question. It lasted from 1600 to 1868. So it's quite a long period. Quite a long period of time. We're really at the end, the actual proper, proper end of the Edo period here. Yeah. Where, with a woman who uh, was a part of the end of the Edo period, ah, actually. It all came crumbling all came down. Crashing down. So the woman that we're talking about today is Takiko Nakano. I hope that I said that name vaguely correctly. Please forgive me if I didn't. I don't speak Japanese, but I'm going to give it a red hot go with all of the pronunciation yep. today. That's what we do. We don't know how to pronounce any people's names. We're very bad at pronouncing names. But we try. But we always give it a red hot go. Yeah. I think that's what counts. That's what, hopefully. Isn't that what counts? <laughs> yeah. Takiko was born in the good year 1847 and we have been in this time period quite a lot before but not in this country no we've never been we haven't been to japan we haven't been to japan so the edo period just really quickly was a relatively peaceful time so there wasn't a lot of disruptions to things it was ruled by the tokugawa shogunate okay so that's a feudal japanese military government and because that's your that's what a shogun is. Yeah, the like shogun a military is the, leader. Like a yeah. general leader. A general, not like an everyday leader, but like a military general. Yeah. I just like, you know, realize the ambiguity of the word general. I now. think everyone at home understands. Probably understands. <laughs> There's also an emperor at the same time, but the emperor is just a figurehead. So they don't actually have any real political power. In fact, they were required just to devote mostly themselves to scholarship and to the arts. Things like calligraphy and poetry. They didn't even really learn anything about military history or any kind of history or languages or anything. So they were figureheads devoted to the arts and they weren't consulted for any decisions by the shogun. Were they a figurehead also in terms of like dynastic line? Yeah. So it was actually like a... Were they emperor by blood? Yes. Right. Yeah. I believe so. Because Emperor Meiji was born in 1852 and he was really young when he became the emperor. So he was not quite born at the same time as Takiko, but he was the emperor during most of Mm. the important stuff in her life. And that is going to be important later in the story. But that's all we really need to know for now. Also, at this period of time, Japan was really quite closed off, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there had been no trade in Japan for 150 years. No outside trade. No outside trade. And any merchants who did try to come to Japan were often either killed or they were, like, marooned on islands and left to die. So Western influence in Japan was really, really new, and that caused a lot of problems that really are actually the fundamental reason for the conflict that we're going to talk about happening. Ooh, exciting. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to I am going to come to talk about that a little bit more. Great. So Tahiko was born as a part of the Azu clan and um they're the top of samurai society and they're related to the shogun. So the, it's important to also kind of talk a little bit about the samurai as well. Who were the noble class, the landowners? They were technically the warriors, but during this period as I said it was really quite a peaceful time. So whereas in the past they really had been the fearless honorable warriors during this period they were really just more bureaucrats okay (laughs) yeah swords yeah and then there's okay so the samurai are actually technically men the the term samurai is gendered the female equivalent is the onabugeisha Okay, so the Onabugeisha are the female warriors or the female samurai, if you can call them that, which is technically not correct. So I might say female samurai just to 
make things easier because I'm talking about this particular class of people, the, the noble elite, um, but they're technically called the owner bugeisha. And so because, as I said, peaceful time, we're all just kind of bureaucrats, no longer really warriors, but they definitely still trained as warriors. And so they still had all of their martial arts training. And this goes for both boys and girls. And that's really important. But the function of male and female warriors changed. So as the samurai were no longer concerned with battles for women who in ancient times had actually been able to hold a lot more power. They had been empresses. They had been warriors in the past. There's archaeological evidence that suggests that there may have been more female warriors than previously thought. But then in the period before this time, they had lost a lot of those rights. They had taken on much more of that passive docile female role and at the same time in this period they really are seen as child bearers so they're not really deemed fit for battle okay so in that case why are the women being trained to fight is it so they can protect their own homes is it what's the reason for them even training so it has a lot to do with protecting the home The women were trained to essentially when their men were off doing their manly things, the women were left in charge of the household. And so they were trained in the ways of this very particular weapon called the naginata. And this is like a really, it's like a halberd. It's a long spear type weapon with a curved blade on the end. And this is associated with females. Well, well, I say female samurais, but again, the onabugeshas. And they're trained in this because, well, firstly, they're long designed for like sweeping cuts to opponents. And so they're seen as being advantageous for women who are like slighter and not a, maybe not as strong mm. so as male your, opponents. You can keep your distance. Yeah, you keep yeah. distance, just like stab them in the eye. You're stab them in the eye. Like, hey, stab them in the eye. Sweep their feet, trip yep. them up, you know. Yeah. Um, or just cut their feet off. All that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really designed for skill and speed. Because women are like little and quick and you can just stab them in there. There are so many actions going on here. (laughs) But um, yeah. So, and they were often given as wedding gifts so that the wife could defend their home. (laughs) That's great. And they were kept by the entrance of the house. And it was sort of, it had a very practical role, but it's also symbolic. So it was also seen as an emblem of her role in society. So practicing with the Naganata was a means of merging um, with the, like this idea of self-sacrifice. So it's connecting to the ideals of the warrior class. Sacrifice and honor are really, really valued ideals for this class. And so it has a lot to do with both. Yes, it is a physical weapon that women did wield. They could use them to chase prowlers off the, you know, ground. If you've got someone like coming up to your house while your husband's away and you're like not so sure about him, you just grab grab your Naganata. Grab your grand Naganata, wave it at him. You know, like I imagine that Hey you get off my damn Exactly, get off my lawn and waving your shotgun at people. Mm -hmm. So it's a similar kind of deal, right? Yeah. Um protection and a symbol of honor and that symbol of sacrifice. But I really wish somebody we're still giving away weapons yeah. In, <laughs> yeah. For, for weddings. Yeah, what no. a great wedding gift. Yeah, imagine getting that like little bombonaries. You could get like, <laughs> I have no idea. You could get like but a small dagger. But you're giving them to other people. Oh. If it's a bombonary. Oh, yeah, that's true. You All don't right. get that. You know what? No one take any weapons to weddings. <laughs> 
that's not a thing. Let's not do that. So that's women in this period. Although they're trained with the Naginata, this is really that symbolic training. It's about indoctrinating into them the ideals of the warrior class, about self-sacrifice. So women surrender themselves to their husbands, to the home and to the family, is seen as the same as a man's self-sacrifice to the good of his lord and country. So there's like women annihilates herself for man so that he is able to annihilate himself for his master and in turn that master annihilates himself for heaven. Okay, so it's like a hierarchical system. And so training in this weapon is a part of that sort of spirit. I love the ideology. fact that it's, it's a hierarchical system of annihilation. Oh, annihilation is a really key idea here that we are going to come back to a number of times. I have a feeling that ritual suicide may well play into this. Might come up once or twice. Yeah. 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 And this is interesting because for us in the West, particularly, I think the idea of ritual suicide seems so strange and bizarre, but it is such an important concept. Yeah. And it's huge at this period of, in this period of history. Absolutely. So yeah. So this is the world that Takeko is born into. Um, When she was a child, she was raised under the instruction of her master, Master Dasuki. He was her instructor. She went to live with him and she became like his adopted daughter. Um, And he trained her in martial arts, but she was also educated in calligraphy and poetry and like moral and ethical training. The aim of education for girls was to cultivate like refined, educated brides yeah, so that they can build alliances with other clans and families and consolidate power and all those same things that were going on for women in the West as well, yeah. you know, where particularly of noble class. Yeah. And I like the fact that you want your wife to not only be able to write your poetry and do calligraphy, but you also want your wife to be able to like kick ass. Yeah. They are literally, I read somewhere that they need to be equally skilled in the ways of the pen and the sword. That's so great. Yeah. If they were from this, because there's different ranks within the samurai classes as well. And at this period, economically things weren't great. And a lot of people blamed the Shogun for economic woes. And so even the some of the samurai class were living in poverty. This is not in Takeko's case, but if you were of one of these families, these lower ranking or poverty samurai families, as a woman, you, you may have well have ended up in servitude still, mm. or your education might've just been limited to things like sewing and hairstyling and learning to basically be self-sufficient. But in the Azu clan, which is Takeko's clan, they took training their women very seriously. And they were probably the most well-educated and most well-trained in martial arts of any clans in Japan. So really in-depth combat training. So this is where she's learning to use the Naginata and she showed great, like huge promise as a warrior. She was also a really curious child and read a lot about other female warriors and generals and empresses. Yes, because there's another really famous female samurai from like a long time before. If it's the one that I'm thinking of, it's 600 years before. Yes, it is the one you're thinking of. You're thinking of Tamo Gozen? I am thinking of Tamo Gozen. Yeah. Correct. (laughs) Do you want to tell me about her? No, because you probably know more about her. She was a, she again, (laughs) She was also like a horsewoman. Yeah, horsewoman and, and archer and general. Yeah, she was a fierce, fierce lady. Yeah, she's really revered for being super fierce and like amazingly brave and awesome. 
And according to one version of her story, she and her commander, they were facing this huge force, really overwhelming odds. They knew that this is not going to go well. And the commander ordered her to escape, to run away. Oh, yes, I do know this story. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because it's dishonorable for him to die in the presence of a woman. And so he's like, even though they were up until this point, they were fighting side by side. They would have been, you know, they worked well together at this point in death. They couldn't die together because that's dishonorable. So he's like, you got to run away. But she didn't. She was like, no, I'm just going to stick around a little bit longer and keep fighting. She took out some more dudes, decapitated this other guy who was coming at the commander. And then finally, then she's like, all right, I'll go now. Now that I've got my trophy head, because yeah. that's another thing, mm-hmm. taking heads as trophies. Yeah. Now that I've got my trophy, I can go and you can die in honor. Yeah. So the one story I do remember about her is that, in a particular battle, so at the start of your battle, you would send out your best warrior from each clan. You'd send your best warrior in for a f- duel to the death, right? So that was what happened before yeah. your all-in yeah. big battle began. And so she was sent in masked. Mortal combat. Mortal combat, exactly. So she was sent in as the warrior on her clan side, mm-hmm. but wearing her armor and wearing a mask. So, so she looks like a man. So she looks like mm-hmm. a man. Nobody knows that she's a woman on the other side. And the first thing you do is you bring the head of your last victim oh, yeah. with you yeah. as sort of like, so look, this is the last person I killed and I'm just letting you know that this is their head. Yeah. Hey, and this is... Would good. you like to see it? Yeah. Would you like to see this This head? could be you. This could be you. In fact, if everything goes to plan, this, this will, will be, be you. you. <laughs> and then in the next battle, this will be your head. Yeah. So that was kind of what you would use your that decapitated... terrifying. Imagine seeing, like being confronted with that with the, the yeah the decapitated like, head yeah. of the last person oh, that man. person's killed it's a good strategy it's such a good strategy so they went into their fight and she won and just as he was dying just before she did the final blow she took off her mask yeah and and so he dies in dishonor dies in massive dishonor because it's kind of like how mary like when we were talking about mary and anne on the ships yes. The like pirate women. The pirate ladies, how they would bare their breasts to men just before they killed them yeah. so that they knew that they were being killed by a woman. Yeah. It's so great. <laughs> uh, anyway. So that- much death and destruction. <laughs> hey. We're going to get some more of that. Yes. Don't you worry. So this particular other historical warrior, I'm assuming, was an inspiration. Yeah. Oh, her. yeah. Totally. Yes. That's right. That's why we were talking yeah. about Because they all would have known yeah. this story, right? Yeah. This would have been a yeah. legend that they all would have been taught. Yeah. I imagine this is part of their education. So, yeah. Anyway, so she's training for years. In 1863, she's 16 years old and she becomes a master. She has reached womanhood. And a part of reaching womanhood, there's this ritual where the female samurai would be given a caken by her mother. Do you a cake. A cake A cake. A delicious cake. Delicious cake. I have a feeling you're talking about it's not a, a delicious dagger. Cake. It's I a dagger, the caken, yeah. yeah. Um, it is. It's a short dagger. But also a delicious cake. Do you get both? Can cake-in? you have cake and a dagger? Can or you do get you... your cake and eat it? Caken and eat it too? Caken and eat it too? Am I saying that right? Caken? Caken? I don't know, but I like saying caken and eat it too. Okay, caken and eat it too. Yeah, so it's a short dagger that you're supposed to carry on you at all times. So you like keep it up your sleeve, in your kimono, Uh in your sash. And yeah, it's presented to you by your mother in this ritual. And this is about that preservation of family honor. The really honorable part of this is that this is the weapon that you need to use as a part of your honourable ritual suicide, if it should if ever come If the moment to that. arises yeah. where you need to commit suicide. Yeah, because you have to be, like, ready and willing to do that at any moment. And it could happen. Like, there's a lot of 
cases where you may have to commit ritual suicide. So there's the obvious one where if your home or your castle is under siege, so if you know that there are enemies about to come through the gates, you commit suicide because you cannot be taken as a prisoner. That would be, it's considered very dishonorable to be captured. The other risk for women is that you might be raped. Yeah. And so to preserve your honor, you it's better to commit suicide than to yeah, be raped by your enemy. Yeah, it's better yeah. to die chaste than yep, to exactly, to have your purity that. taken. So you have to be prepared for this at all times. And there's also another part of this preparation, which is that if you're going to commit suicide, I just want to give this detail, you also would tie your legs together with your kimono so that when you commit suicide, you suicide gracefully. Yeah, I heard that as well. Yeah. I heard that too. That Yeah, so you use your sash to tie your yeah, knees together so, so that, that I guess you, would... you don't fall over gracefully and your legs wouldn't I like know, just imagine that like <laughs> such forward thinking I know. you don't want to commit suicide and then have your legs spread and Sprawled your kimono everywhere. up over your head that's you wanna, terrible that's right no, go gracefully you like a lady to look like a lady yeah I really don't want to make light of this because, again, it is really it's a strange concept for us in the West to understand this whole notion of ritual suicide. But it is so much about that honor and family honor and, you know, all and of And being things. prepared for the fact that that's yep. a real eventuality. And being willing to sacrifice yourself. Probably my strongest association for this is thinking about the Japanese pilots in World War II. Mm, kamikazes. Um, yeah, because that's, I think that's where I first became aware of that tradition of sacrifice and of suicide. For a greater, for a cause. greater yeah. cause. Yeah, because you have such an individualistic culture in the West that it's so hard to imagine that you'd be willing to give your life for something bigger than yourself. But yeah, that's what it's all about so well not give your life because i mean like soldiers going off to war for any country oh of course but giving your life in that particular way where it is the consequence is basically you know it's a suicide mission yeah and that there is no hope for you to come back from it yeah that just reminds me you know the ancient greek spartan saying of come back with your shield or on your shield. Yes. The samurai had a very similar ideology, which was come back with your enemy's head or without your head. <laughs> so okay, yeah, Got it's it. that. I, yeah, you yeah. you don't return from battle unless you're victorious. Yeah. Or dead. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing. You don't get captured. You don't allow yourself to be captured. You don't allow yourself to be disgraced by your enemy. So Takeko has been taught all of this stuff and she does become a master and starts to instruct the other younger students, including her sister Yuko. And apparently one of her other things that she would do um, when she was a little bit older working in the school still is that she would catch peeping Toms in the bathhouse. <laughs> so I imagine yeah. them, like... With her... With her naganata. Yeah, with her naganata chasing them out of the bathhouse. Yeah. (laughs) So, there you go. Anyway, that was a bit of fun. So, she's 16 years old. She's working with her master, teaching everybody. But Um, she's already... So, she's already become a master. She's she's become a master and she's now teaching alongside Master Dasuki. And he decides that he's got this nephew who might be a pretty good marriage partner. Yeah. What do you call that? Marriage room? Mar- man. Marriage. A marriage man. Sorry. Prospect. I'm a lot of pain and cold and flu medication today. My brain's not working very well. A marriage prospect? That's the one that I'm I wanted. Gonna say prospect. Marriage prospect. Yeah, so obviously he would want her to marry his nephew because if she's so great that she's already mm. a master, then he's thinking to himself, let's lock down this excellent fighter. Let's keep yeah. this in the family. But the thing is, is even if that were to happen, 
if she becomes his wife, she has to give up so much of what she's doing yeah. now because she's then going to have right. to be the child bearer and the person who's looking after the home. And even though a lot of that looking after the home is about, you know, teaching the children these skills and passing all that stuff on and defending the home, it does still mean that she has to sacrifice a lot of what she's doing now. Well, she wouldn't be able to be a master anymore. She wouldn't be able to teach other girls in a broader sense. And so she's not really that keen. Yeah, fair enough too. And another reason that she's not keen, and this is, I think, a really important one, is that there's a lot of growing civil unrest in the country. Mm. So this comes back to what we were talking about before, about the new kind of foreign influence that's starting to infiltrate Edo. So like we said before, there hadn't been any trade for like 150 years until the Americans show up. Oh, I know who leads them. Led by Commander. Do you want to? Led by... TV's Commander Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry. (laughs) Turns up. Commodore Matthew Perry turns up in the shores of Edo in the 1860s. And he's not the same as the guy from Friends. I mean, he might be a vampire. (laughs) Maybe. It could have been Matthew Perry 150 years before he was on Friends. So TV's Matthew Perry turns up on the shores of Japan. And he's like, I am not leaving until I get a trade deal. Right. Or at least another series of friends. That's right. Right. They were like, sorry, we can't help with friends. Well, actually, the the Japanese were kind of hoping that if they ignored him for long enough, he'd go away. Um, (laughs) And that didn't work. But the thing is that the Americans weaponry was far more sophisticated than the Japanese and so he started firing volleys from the cannon and they had way more reach and power than the Japanese weapons Mm. so that he could make his point and so it ended up just kind of causing a massive outrage because the samurai had no power for retaliation so while some Japanese people were amused by the new westerners and their strange foreign ways and so Takiko started to see a lot of foreigners in the marketplace because she started hanging out in the in the markets a lot more often after she left the school so she would have been seeing for the first time in her life white people yeah and a lot of them like Japanese culture and customs are very different from Western culture and customs. And so there was a lot of like embarrassing sorts of faux pas, faux pas yes. a lot of embarrassing faux pas mm. and that kind of thing. And so for some that this was just all like, oh, oh my gosh, look how embarrassing that white man doesn't know how to do this and he doesn't know what this means and all that kind of stuff. But for many, they were just really mad yeah um because Because they would have looked so rude they would have been being so rude yes so there's the that kind of cultural rudeness you know that kind of stuff but more than that there's event like the americans did get their way and they did end up with their trade agreement and so a lot of people saw this as a sign of weakness on behalf of the shogun and they started to see him as not only being weak but also being like a puppet for the Mm. Western foreigners. Mm -hmm. And Edo started to become really, really dangerous for Westerners. A lot of people really despised them. And so there were a lot of attacks on foreigners and on government officials. So the Americans came in, but then that also opened it up to like the French and the British and everyone else then started arriving. So the success of Matthew Perry. Yep. Good. Uh Led to, yeah, exactly. He hasn't had much success in the last. (laughs) This century. This century. 19th century Matthew Perry was successful. And yeah, exactly right. That meant that then the French and the English were like, we want a piece of that. Yeah. We want in there. And so they all started flooding in. And so this led to a big division, particularly among the noble, like 
samurai classes. So there were those who opposed the shogun and the Western kind of invasion. They rebelled and started to openly defy Mm. the rule of the shogun. And instead they started to rally under the banner of the emperor Meiji. So remember the Uh, emperor, he's kind of just a figurehead. Mm -hmm. He's also very, very young emperor Meiji. So the emperor is sort of obviously situated like elsewhere. He's in in Kyoto. Kyoto. Yeah, Yeah, Kyoto. Yep. So they all rally under him, Kyoto, under his banner. And meanwhile, then the Shogun also has his troops. So we end up with these two clashing sides. And geographically, they're on the other side of Japan, aren't they? In Kyoto? Yeah. So Kyoto is sort of off to the never eat soggy wheat bix. Kyoto's off to the west, right? Yeah, like yeah. The, sort of the southwest. Yeah. And, but Edo's in the yeah. south. Southeast, is that right? So they're kind of on separate sides. Yeah. Well, but I mean, they're all in Edo, which is contemporary Tokyo. So even though their alliances are with the emperor who's located over there, we're, we're still talking about noble families who are living in Edo. Yeah. All, again, they're just using the emperor as their yeah. rallying sign. They're like, we're going to return power to the emperor because we don't trust the shogun anymore. So geographically, the armies did move around. Yeah. But this is all kind of taking place in this concentrated area. And right. actually, our story is going to move north because oh. that's where the Azu clan is. Okay. And so the Azu clan... They have ties to the Shogun. They're, they're related to the Shogun, and that's who they side with. They're loyal to them. And so the Shogun orders an army of 15,000 led by the Azu to destroy the rebel stronghold. And that's when they, yeah, they do head off over to Kyoto to try to do that. However, the Azu were equipped with kind of archaic firearms. Ah, uh, yeah. So both sides were getting firearms from the West, but it's, it's a buyer's market at this time, you know, so you get what's available to you. I found it kind of ironic that those who were like opposed to the West ended up with the best Western weapons (laughs) and those who were pro, well, not pro, but, you know, allowed the Western, you know, this quote unquote Western invasion were the ones who ended up with the really shitty weapons. So basically the Shogun's army, the Azu army had these firearms, which were the equivalent of like 16th century firearms they like muskets shot two shots per minute um whereas the others were like 15 shots per minute or something there are a lot of papers that go into a lot of detail about (laughs) About the the weapons the weapons i skim read over the stuff about the weapons but i know enough to know they were very disproportionate i guess if they hadn't been trained up until this point if they hadn't been trained for like 150 years then the weapons that they would have had from yeah. outside would be 150 a very years old. limited yeah exactly very old very limited and in short supply and open to whoever has the most money and the most influence who can get them from their new western trading partners but the azu had an ally named henry schnell who was a former prussian army officer hired had, as a translator by the prussian embassy had nothing to do with friends at all was never in an episode henry, uh, henry schnell henry schnell i might have guest starred yeah i <laughs> know Maybe he Had did. a cameo? Had a cameo at some point. He was in Japan basically to strike it rich, but he kind of fell in love with it and married a Japanese woman. Um, so he had a plan to import the much-needed rifles for the Azu. This is all very kind of beside the point. Really, we can kind of probably skip over a little bit. What's important to know is that fighting is happening. Okay, got it. And the Emperor's men were outnumbered three to one, but with their new fancy rifles and cannons... 
the Shogun Samurai didn't really stand much of a chance, even though they've got more numbers on the ground. Yes, so they go off. They're moving from Edo to Kyoto. Then the Shogun flees back to Edo. The victorious Emperor's Army also goes back to Edo. And then the all of the Aizu clan are called north for a final stand against the Emperor's final Army. Final showdown. Final countdown. So they all head up to the hey, capital. Yeah. On a completely unrelated note, you know earlier on when I was trying to figure out the north, south, east, west thing, yeah. and I said never, never see, eat soggy wheat never bix. Never eat soggy wheat bix. Do you reckon that like half the world's not going to know what we're talking about? Never eat soggy wheat bix must be Australian. Yeah, that has to be an Australian oh thing. Oh my God. What do they do to remember North, East, South and West? I don't know. What do you do to remember North, East, South and West, rest of the world? Do you let, let us know. Because here in Australia, we do that. Never we eat soggy wheat bix Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> so they're heading north to never. To never. Um, <laughs> they're moving up from yes, soggy. Up to never. To Castle Wakamatsu. This is the heart of their defense. Okay, this is the Azu territory. And this castle is being defended by. Now, she has two names. It's either Princess Teru or Lady Teruhime. But we can just call her Teru, I think, because that's, I'm that's happy the same that. across both of them. So she's instrumental in organizing the defense of the castle. So the women didn't typically fight, but in this case, the women are going to have to fill the ranks of the army because the Aizu so clan, died, yeah, they've yeah. been really wiped out. They didn't have a good time in Kyoto or in Edo. Things are not good. Okay, so now let's rejoin Takiko. Let's do okay? it. All right, so last time we saw her, she had just left the school, turned down the marriage proposal because she's like, no, there's something else going on. There's more for me. I'm not going to just get married. There's more to life than this. There must be more than this provincial life. life. Okay, good. There's more. Yeah. She mm-hmm. doesn't have a provincial life, but, you know, That's, anyway, maybe well, she does. Okay. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> so Takiko and her sister Yuko also go north. They follow the Aizu up to Castle Wakamatsu. And soon the castle is surrounded by a siege army of 15,000. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> there was about 5,000 of them inside the castle. That's not as lot. No. That's not as One lot. One to three. One to three. <gasps> okay. All the roads are blocked. Okay. There's no way in, no way out. Things are... Things are looking grim. Not good. The watch bell rang out for all to retreat to the well-fortified Crane Castle. Okay. Okay. Now... The Aizu samurai women need to make a decision when this bell rings. They've got a few options available to them. Remember that it's mostly women and children. A lot of the men are dead. So they can evacuate to the countryside and hide with the peasant families. They can withdraw into Castle Crane and hold up there. They can commit ritual mass suicide or they can engage in direct combat. So... They all do a variety of these things, okay? They don't all just go, here's a vote, this is what we're going to do. Some of them do one thing, some of them do another. Apparently, about 20 households consisting of more than 230 military family members and their retainers committed mass suicide. Whoa. Yeah. So as the Imperial Army is breaching the castle walls, 230 family members commit suicide. There's 5,000 inside, okay? So that's a number that is a fair fair ward yeah. of people yeah. takiko is determined not to give in though so on that yeah. because another thing as well is that not only 
were you facing the dishonor of being caught as a prisoner, the possibility of attack, possibility of rape, all of these sorts of things. Is it true that often the women were taken and then basically sold on to the Westerners as well if they were captured? You could become a concubine or a prostitute. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's so that's thing. another threat. And, and this was part of it. There were rumours that the foreigners particularly, not just the emperor's army, but the foreigners are going to come and take the women. Yeah. That was yeah. a rumour that was spreading. So that definitely, well, so that I been- don't want to say definitely – but it's said to have contributed to yeah. the suicides. Because yeah. that would have been terrifying yeah. because that would have been your fear that you were going to then be <clears throat> like taken away mm. and sold off to mm. the... And they don't know anything about Westerners really. Like they're just these strange new people with strange new customs and strange new ways. Yeah, they it must have been terrifying. So Takiko's determined she's not going to give in. Escape, hiding and suicide will not be her fate. Um, there's more to be done. She's there's been training. This. She's been training her whole life for this. Yeah. You know, this is it. This is the moment she's been training for. So she and her sister cut their hair in the style of male samurai. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do this. So word gets out of her famous skills as a warrior. She was pretty famous for her like teaching and her fighting skills. And the other Onabugeisha women, uh, the samurai women who are determined to fight, decide to join her. Now, on this, so the best case for you if you decide to fight is if you are a sing, young single woman or a widow, but not all of these women were. And for those who weren't, some of them actually killed their children first oh. to ensure the honourable deaths of their children yeah. before they, you know, yeah. suffer this inevitable death, really. One of them, Kawahara Asako, the wife of one of the magistrates, she like cropped her hair just like Takeko did. She grabbed an naganata and set out to join her after executing members of her family. Apparently, her previously spotless white clothing had been drenched with the fresh blood of her having just decapitated her mother-in-law and daughter. <gasps> and then she went out to join them. So that's the type of thing that's happening in the castle. It must have been a frenzy. Yeah. Like can you like bloodbath? There's a fucking massive army at the doorstep and it's like panic and 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 you decapitate your own family so that the victors can't take their heads yes yes right so you make sure that you decapitate them first so that you can bury them you can bury them otherwise they'll end up as trophies yeah otherwise their heads will be taken so you take their head first yep yeah right that's a thing that's going to come up again Okay, good. Glad we flagged it. Yep. So Takiko and her sister and their mother prepare. There's about 20 or so willing samurai warrior women for battle. They weren't called this at the time, but they've become known as the Yoshigan. Mm -hmm. This is where I like to think that this is where we cue the movie montage. Oh, yep, definitely. Of the 20 women gathering together. Yep. And they're all getting ready and the powerful... 80s music is playing as they're like grabbing yeah. them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep, got it. They're getting all their shit together. They're cutting their hair off. Yep. They're changing their clothes. Or maybe I have the tiger instead. I have the tiger probably. Of the, uh, the tiger. Yes. Yep, got it. They wrote death poems. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So something beautiful to leave behind them. It's to help prepare the individual for this honorable death. One of, okay, so this is a poem by sisters, 13 and 16 years old. With two hands joined as one, we venture out journeying to the mountain of death. 
Wow. To Kiko's poem. How do you write that? I know. Takiko's poem, which was tied to the tip of her Naginata, read, When compared to the ranks of warriors' stalwart hearts, I cannot enter into their number despite this body of mine. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive stuff. I know. Yep. So then part of this pre-battle ritual, Takiko and Yuko make a pact. Hang on. Not to die in shame. do that how do you know you're about to go off into battle and just take a moment to write a beautiful poem well, and just be like oh yeah i'll just pump out this beautiful poem right now well i guess it's a bit like a suicide note kind of but it's again it's part of the preparation you know it's getting yourself ready making sure that your death is honorable and also it's about beauty isn't it absolutely it's about beauty it's absolutely. about seeing that kind of side of it yeah in the same way that when you commit suicide you wrap your legs up so that you die gracefully. So you die gracefully. This is another part of that. And yeah, Takiko and Yuko make a pact that they're going to die honorably, not going to die in shame. So as the castle's warning bell sounds, Takiko and Yuko abandon their residence and take up swords to participate in the sortie outside the castle's walls. Okay, so this is when shit starts to get real. All right. So they go out. However, while they're out fighting, the castle's defended barred the entry gate. So when they attempted to return to the safety of the fortress, they were unable to get back in. So the women all gathered back together. So just imagine it. They've all cropped their previously waist length hair, pulled it back in the male style, which is a ponytail with side locks. They wear white silk headbands. They've got their women's upper garments with their sleeves tied back by white silk and young men's style trousers and straw sandals. So they look kind of like men, but a lot of the women, if they were married, they'd have blackened teeth. Oh, yes. So that would have given them away as being women. Yeah. That was a fashionable thing to do, it was wasn't fashionable, it? To blacken yeah. your teeth. Yeah. I wonder if that'll ever come back into vogue. Let's, well, let's, we, yeah, I mean, apparently low rise jeans are coming back, unfortunately. <laughs> so you That's never know. Very similar. They're the same thing, just, practically. Just not very attractive. No, right, probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they're armed with their naginata and their kaken. So Takiko and the other Yoshigun women make their way to Kawahara, a previously designated gathering place for the Aizu forces, just beyond the city's outer gate. Because they'd heard that Lady Teru had been evacuated here to a post station to the northwest. So they decide to go and help her. It's raining, it's sleeting and cold. The walk there is three hours long. Um, when they arrived, they were fed by the locals and Takiko made her way to seek permission from the commander to join his forces. However. 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 Are we going to run into like a stubborn hoity-toity man? Yes. All right. Imagine there's this man, Takiko and the Yoshigun. They're not welcome on the battlefield. For women to participate, it would be seen as a sign of weakness and of desperation of the Aizu clan. So he's just like, nah, nah, we, yeah, do we need your help? Yes. Are we going to Are we going to take it? No. no. <laughs> and as a samurai woman, she has to submit to her commander's orders. But like I said, it would have been seen as shameful for male samurai if the success of a battle could be attributed to women. Yes, yeah, so it's not so much that they fight, right? It's just that if there's 
so many of them that the success then gets attributed to them. That's where it's dishonorable. That's yeah, that's part of it. So partly it's if the enemy sees women fighting, yeah, they'll be right. like, "Oh my god, you guys are so desperate. You've had to bring your women out. You uh-huh. must have nothing left." Yeah. You know, like, "Haha, you guys suck. You're so weak." And then the other part is, yeah, Okay, so that might mean that we lose. The other case is if we win and we win because of women, that's also dishonorable. Right. Yeah. And this is interesting because I like I read a few things about the fact that there is archaeological evidence, and not of this period from earlier, that suggests that there may have been more female warriors than have ever been written about. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. And so, yeah, and this is, I think, part of it. It's that... Female warriors possibly, we can't say for sure, but archaeological evidence suggests that they did exist and that they did fight on the battlefield. Yeah, but because then, that's what the archaeological evidence is, isn't it? It's women's skeletons being yeah. found on these battlefields. Yeah, and in armour. And so there's women who have been found in areas that some people have attributed to being mass suicide again. Like, no, 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 these women, we their skeletons are here because they all obviously must have committed suicide here, not actually fought. But then there are other people who are like, no, these suggest that they were fighting. So it's a bit up in the air. But I think that the thing about them not being written about perhaps comes back to this idea of honor, that you don't want to attribute the success to the women being on the battlefield. Yep. I mean, I don't know that for sure. That's just what it made me think of. That's just what, Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's all well and good if you if you fight and if that helps us out, but just as long as nobody really gives you no the props knows. for it. Yeah. For it. yeah. <laughs> Maybe. As long as, as, long as you don't get too much acknowledgement yeah. for it. Yeah. So, so the only way that she can get the commander to say that they can join is that she threatens to kill herself in front of him. Oh, wow. She's, yeah, like straight up, if you don't let me fight, I will kill myself in front of you right now. And he's like, oh, fine. You can fight with us. So they become a part officially of... They make up an official squadron after that. She would have too, wouldn't she? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like if he had said no... If it just been like, nah, she probably would have done it. She would have still... She would have gone through with it. It wasn't a bluff. No, I really don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not like a teenage girl who's like, Dad, if you don't let me go to the party, (laughs) I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) I hate you. I hate you. Ah. No. No. Not like that at all. (laughs) No. So their last evening, they stay in the house of one of the Yoshigun, the female warriors in the squadron. And here Takiko and her mother have like a bit of an intense discussion about what to do with Yuko because she's only 16 and she's young and she's really beautiful. So she's a potential target for very unseemly things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they decide in the end that the fear of what the enemy might do to her should they find her in hiding is perhaps worse, worse. than her having an honourable death on yeah. the battlefield. So they decide to bring her with her. So Takiko, by the way, is actually only estimates are between 20 and 22. So let's say she's 21 mm-hmm. for argument's mm-hmm. sake. <laughs> yeah, let's split the difference. Split the difference, just about 21-ish. So she's 21, commanding her mother and her sister and a squadron of 20 women. So her mother's fighting as well. Yep. Mum's alongside him. Yep. Badass. Yeah. So in the morning, the plan is they're facing troops who have firearms. So the the plan is to attack forcefully and suddenly so that the long blade weapons that they have would become a strength. Okay. Yeah. So there's three squads that are it's like a three-pronged attack. The main force, including the Yoshigun, are going to go from the front and distract them while other forces flank from the sides. 
and to break through and to be able to get back to the castle. So the Yoshigun, the women, are part of this main attack in the middle. So they're like cannon fodder. Exactly. They're the suicide squad. Yeah. And they would have known it. Yeah. You know, there's no coming back from this. They are there so that the flanking sides can get through. Yeah. Nevertheless, this is what they're going to do. They they know that they're going to fight this. Part of it is for the honor. Yeah. You know, they've been given their role and they're going to do it. Exactly. If they didn't want to be there, they would have gone and holed up in the castle or they would have committed suicide. Yeah. So they're like, yep, this is what we're doing. If we're going to commit suicide, we're going to take out a bunch of people with us. So they were using their Naginata and the other side had modern firearms. But the thing is, the enemies realized that they were fighting women. So as soon as they realized that they were close enough, obviously not close enough to be able to shoot them properly, but close enough to recognize that they were women, Mm. a command went up to say, capture them, take them alive. So this means that they're not shooting at them from long distance. Instead, this gives the women the opportunity to engage in close hand-to-hand combat. And of course, this is their strength. This is what they've been trained their whole lives to do. So they're actually doing really well. Their enemy was really shocked by the fury of these women. And I mean, again, Yuhu was 16. She's cutting down men like a boss. Yeah, Yeah. Right? Apparently, Takiko takes out five, six men but then she's shot in the chest. Oh. Yeah. I know. I mean, it was going to happen. We knew. It wasn't we going was to end well. We knew was it? where this story was heading yeah. from the beginning. It's not going to end well. Yeah. Well, it kind of is. It ends as best as it can in these circumstances. <laughs> okay. We all, it was a suicide mission. And yes, she's shot in the chest. But remember that pact that they're going to die honorable deaths, her and her sister? So in order to avoid becoming a trophy... Takiko asked Yuko to decapitate her and bury her head at home. Right. So as she's lying on the ground, dying, breathing out her last, mm. she's like, cut my head cut off. Cut my head off. Sister. Sister. Hey, sister. My beloved 16-year-old sister. my head off. Yep. Whoa. Yeah. Just thinking about if my sister had ever said that to me when I was 16. <laughs> I probably would have been like, yes. I will cut your head off. That's right. You're such a bitch. No, I love love you, sister. I don't mean that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean. That's full on. It is full on. And she did it. So she cut her head off. Okay. So there's actually conflicting reports. Some say, yes, Yuko did do it. Others say that she lacked the strength due to physical exhaustion or because of Takiko's matted hair. And so she actually wasn't physically able to do it. And so another warrior helped her. Because of her matted hair. Yeah, apparently Takiko's hair was so matted with, like, blood and shit that she couldn't do it, like, physically. She couldn't physically cut through. She couldn't physically cut through it. You're right. I mean, that's what I read. That sounds silly. Again, I say conflicting reports. I've read three different versions of this. One version, she does it herself. Another version, she's too exhausted. And in another version, the hair is too matted. Okay. So another warrior helped her cut the head off. But she does. I mean... Either way... Either way, with help or without help, she decapitates her sister on the battlefield. Yeah, right. But it's so that she can preserve her honour and and give her a dignified death and a dignified burial. And so she can keep her head from falling into the hands... Exactly. ...of the enemy. So she can't become a trophy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the end of Takiko. After the death, the Azu survivors did manage to get through the enemy lines and reach the castle, so... It wasn't all for nothing. Well, (laughs) 
Oh, it was. Oh, okay, it was all for nothing. They got back to the castle. But. But. Remember how outnumbered they are? Oh, yeah. I mean, so there's a month of heavy bombardment. Princess Tero eventually surrenders, okay? But first, she seems like another badass woman. First, she orders one. She has one last order. The castle should be immaculately cleaned, okay? That seems important right now. Yeah, immaculately cleaned. Then in the immaculately clean castle, 238 zoo women committed suicide. Mm. The, all of the remaining women. The leftover women. Yeah. And so then when the enemy came in, they left their dirty footprints all over this immaculately clean castle with the dead women in it, which is basically a message to say, you may have defeated us, but you've not crushed our spirit. Mm. And so that siege basically marks the end of a 1,000-year samurai era. The new rulers abolish the samurai status and order them to surrender their swords. The shogun retired, and the surviving Eitsu were exiled to the north. Yuko did go back home. So Yuko survived. She went to the family temple with Takiko's remains, and a priest buried them with honor. And so now she's still remembered. There's a memorial on the site where she fought and died, And apparently young women still go there and honor her and they still are trained to fight like her. Like she's still really remembered and celebrated, particularly the remaining Aetsu women as well. And there's an annual Aetsu autumn festival. And during this, a group of young girls wearing Hakama and white headbands take part in a procession commemorating the actions of Nakano Takiko and her women fighters of the Yoshigan. Hooray! Hey, we've got lots of listeners in Japan. If, yeah. we, if any of you have been to said festival or happen to have any yeah. knowledge of the story, please get in touch. Yeah, or if any of you have trained with the Naganata, let us know. Yeah. That's really cool. Or if you have any corrections about how we've said anything. Yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, we tried. We hope that we got it wrong. We apologize if we didn't. We, we hope know. that we've got it wrong. We hope that we got it right. <laughs> I hope we did I, I hope we fucked this up. I, really I hope, hope we really made dicks of ourselves. <laughs> because that's what we aim to do on this podcast <laughs> every time. Yeah. Sorry. So, oh. Don't I'm sick. Well, so it was a bit of a sad ending. Yeah. Sad, I think, but in the same way that a lot of our stories have sad endings, but they're actually still kind of, there's a glimmer of something nice and positive there, I think. Although I am kind of left with that image of the victorious forces coming to a immaculately clean castle that's full of dead dead bodies that's full of dead women yeah that's full of women who have slit their own throats it's a Um, bit of a fuck you a bit (laughs) it's a bit of a fuck yeah yeah it really is it's quite a large fuck you that's full on but it's still i think the thing about it is it's still retaining ritual suicide again i've said this before it's a very strange and foreign concept for us in the west but i think it it's about retaining that agency over how yeah um, you make the thought, decision you get to make the decision about how you're going to die and how you're going to be remembered and so I think there is a power in that yeah you know yeah not that we condone no suicide no different culture different context it's a different context it's but a very different context. within this context I do think it's a kind of a powerful thing to be able to say no I'm not going to let you take me yeah I decide how I yeah. die and I decide that I'm going to die with honor yeah and especially in this historical context of yeah. how this plays out in all of those feuds in all of the different it's really like there are such 
distinct, strict rules that mm. need to be followed mm. and abided by. Yep. And this is just part of that system of rules. Exactly. Yep, totally. And again, it's sort of Takiko was in the sense of being a deviant woman. She did bend a few of the rules. She got her way around the commander in order to join the forces and everything. But she was still kind of mostly playing by those rules. Yeah, she was functioning in the, in her society yeah. in the way she was supposed to. She said to. no to the marriage proposal and she did that and everything, which is, I guess, a little bit more unusual. She was still very independent. But the fact that she said no and then that was just a no. Yeah. She wasn't forced into that marriage. No, no. Like, that's an incredibly different idea. It was disappointing, idea. I'm sure. Yeah. But, yeah. It's an incredibly different idea that mm. there is actually a choice and an agency there. So, yes, there are certain ways that that society expects you to behave, but within that you do have choices that yeah. you can make about how your life plays out. And we can see that those women who in a large way were expected to be child rearers and expected to be very domestic in the same way that in the same period of time in the West, women were very passive and very docile and all you know kept in the domestic world. But women in the West weren't taught how to fight. No, because all of this is happening at the same time as, like, our beloved Florence. Exactly. And our, you know, yeah. it's all happening at that same, same sort of very yep. Victorian England period of yeah. history. I can't imagine that women in the West learning how to fight from being children and learning how to, being taught how to fight so that you can defend your home. In that very formal fashion. Yeah. In that, I mean, in terms of like the odd individual who's outside of the realms of normal society, that definitely happens. Yeah. But in terms of actually how it is a formulated, wide scale way that your society works, it's incredibly different. Yeah. It's totally different. Been really fascinating to be able to come to Japan for this episode of Deviant Women and this, uh, yeah. talk about same period of time, but totally different, totally different culture. It's great. That, yeah, that's what I like, and I think that obviously this is a period of time that we keep coming back to, but in different places. And I think that there's a few more places in Definitely. the world at this period of history that we will end up visiting yep. that will probably function in a completely different way again. again. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's just keep going. See where we end up. All right, cool. Who can say? Well, I guess that brings us to the end of this episode. I think it does. Thanks for joining us once again on another episode of Deviant Women. And if you like the podcast, there are a bunch of ways that you can support us. One of them, you can follow us on Twitter, we're at Deviant Women, or on Facebook, we're Deviant Women on Facebook as well. We're just so you know. We're basically deviant women on all of these. On the it doesn't change. It's not really different on any of them. So that also means it goes for iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud. Subscribe, leave us a review if you haven't already. And of course, you can email us at deviantwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Go to our blog site deviantwomenpodcast.com and of course don't forget Patreon as well. Yeah. So please do support us at Patreon. Subscribe, donate, Get on board. We Help have, us to make this. Yeah. We've got some big plans and we're really excited about our big plans. We're not going to reveal them just yet, but your support will help us bring those plans to life. We've got stickers and enamel pins and t-shirts and we want to shower them at you. And of course, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our the big store. drum roll oh, announcement is the store. Yeah. So get on there. At Etsy. And we'll put that link up on the blog as well. Great. So thanks once again. Yeah. And thank you as always to Brendan for sound and India for the music. And we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.